Chapter 4, Part 1 of The Miracles of Our Lord by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jordan. Chapter 4 Miracles of Healing Unsolicited, Part 1. In my last chapter, I took the healing of Simon's wife's mother as a type of all such miracles, viewed from the consciousness of the person healed. In the multitude of cases, for it must not be forgotten that there was a multitude of which we have no individual record, the experience must have been very similar. The evil thing, the antagonist of their life, departed. They knew in themselves that they were healed. They beheld before them the face and form whence the healing power had gone forth and they believed in the man. What they believed about him, farther than that he had healed them, and was good, I cannot pretend to say. Some said he was one thing, some another, but they believed in the man himself. They felt, henceforth, the strongest of ties binding his life to their life. He was now the central thought of their being, their minds lay open to all his influences, operating in time and by holy gradations. The well of life was henceforth to them an unsealed fountain, and endless currents of essential life began to flow from it through their existence. High love, urging gratitude, awoke the conscience to intenser life, and the healed began to recoil from evil deeds, and vile thoughts, as jarring with the new friendship. Mere acquaintance with a good man is a powerful antidote to evil, but the knowledge of such a man, as those healed by him knew him, was the mightiest of divine influences. In these miracles of healing, our Lord must have laid one of the largest of the foundation stones of his church. The healed knew him henceforth, not by comprehension, but with their whole being. Their very life acknowledged him. They returned to their homes, to recall and love afresh. I wonder what their talk about him was like. What an insight it would give into our common nature, to know how these men and women thought and spoke concerning him. But the time soon arrived, when they had to be public martyrs, that is, witnesses to what they knew, come of it what might. After our Lord's departure came the necessity for those who loved him to gather together, thus bearing their testimony at once. Next to his immediate disciples, those whom he had cured must have been the very heart of the young church. Imagine the living strength of such a heart. Personal love to the personal helper, the very core of it, the church had begun with the first gush of affection in the heart of the mother Mary, and now great was the company of those that published the good news to the world. The works of the father had drawn the hearts of the children, and they spake of the elder brother who had brought those works to their doors. The thoughtful remembrances of those who had heard him speak, the grateful convictions of those whom he had healed, 
the tender memories of those whom he had taken in his arms and blessed these were the fine fibrous multitudinous roots which were to the church existence growth and continuance for these were they which sucked in the dews and rains of that descending spirit which was the life of the tree individual life is the life of the church but one may say why then did he not cure all the sick in judea simply because all were not ready to be cured many would not have believed in him even if he had cured them their illness had not yet wrought its work had not yet ripened them to the possibility of faith his cure would have left them deeper in evil than before he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief god will cure a man will give him a fresh start of health and hope and the man will be the better for it even without having yet learned to thank him but to behold the healer and acknowledge the outstretched hand of help yet not to believe in the healer is a terrible thing for the man and i think the lord kept his personal healing for such as it would bring at once into some relation of heart and will with himself whence arose his frequent demand of faith a demand apparently always responded to at the word the flickering belief the smoking flax burst into a flame evil that is physical evil is a moral good a mighty means to a lofty end pain is an evil but a good as well which it would be a great injury to take from the man before it had wrought its end then it becomes all evil and must pass i now proceed to a group of individual cases in which as far as we can judge from the narratives our lord gave the gift of restoration unsolicited there are other instances of the same but they fall into other groups gathered because of other features the first is that recorded by saint luke alone of the woman which had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years and was bowed together as could in no wise lift up herself it may be that this belongs to the class of demoniacal possession as well but i prefer to take it here for i am very doubtful whether the expression in the narrative a spirit of infirmity even coupled with that of our lord in defending her and himself from the hypocritical attack of the ruler of the synagogue this woman whom satan hath bound renders it necessary to regard it as one of the latter kind this is however a matter of small importance at least from our present point of view bowed earthwards the necessary blank of her eye the ground and not the horizon the form divine deformed towards that of the four-footed animals this woman had been in bondage eighteen years necessary as it is to one's faith to believe every trouble fitted for the being who has to bear it every physical evil not merely the result of moral evil but antidotal thereto no one ought to dare judge of the relation between moral condition and physical suffering in individual cases our lord has warned us from that 
but in proportion as love and truth prevail in the hearts of men physical evil will vanish from the earth the righteousness of his descendants will destroy the disease which the unrighteousness of their ancestor has transmitted to them but i repeat to destroy this physical evil save by the destruction of its cause by the redemption of the human nature from moral evil would be the ruin of the world what in this woman it was that made it right she should bear these bonds for eighteen years who can tell certainly it was not that god had forgotten her what it may have preserved her from one may perhaps conjecture but can hardly have a right to utter neither can we tell how she had borne the sad affliction whether in the lovely patience common amongst the daughters of affliction or with the natural repining of one made to behold the sun and doomed ever to regard the ground upon which she trod while patience would have its glorious reward in the cure it is possible that even the repinings of prideful pain might be destroyed by the grand deliverance that gratitude might beget sorrow for vanished impatience anyhow the right hour had come when the darkness must fly away supported i presume by the staff which yet more assimilated her to the lower animals she had crept to the synagogue a good sign surely for the synagogue was not its ruler there is no appearance from the story that she had come there to seek jesus or even that when in his presence she saw him before the word of her deliverance had gone forth most likely being bowed together she heard him before she saw him but he saw her our translation says he called her to him i do not think this is correct i think the word although it might mean that does mean simply that he addressed her going to her i think and saying woman thou art loosed from thy infirmity he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified god what an uplifting a type of all that god works in his human beings the head down bent with sin care sorrow pain is uplifted the grovelling will sends its gaze heavenward the earth is no more the one object of the aspiring spirit we lift our eyes to god we bend no longer even to his will but raise ourselves up towards his will for his will has become our will and that will is our sanctification although the woman did not beg the son to cure her she may have prayed the father much anyhow proof that she was ready for the miracle was not wanting she glorified god it is enough she not merely thanked the man who had wrought the cure for of this we cannot doubt but she glorified the known saviour god from whom cometh down every good gift and every perfect gift she had her share in the miracle i think too as in his perfect bounty god gives a share to every one in what work he does for him i mean that with the given power she had to lift herself up such active faith is the needful response 
in order that a man may be a child of God, and not the mere instrument upon which his power plays a soulless tune. In this preventing of prayer, in this answering before the call, in this bringing of the blessing to the door, according to which I have grouped this with the following miracles, Jesus did as his Father is doing every day. He was doing the works of his Father. If men had no help, no deliverance from the ills which come upon them, even those which they bring upon themselves, except such as came at their cry, if no salvation descended from God, except such as they prayed for, where would the world be? In what case would the generations of men find themselves? But the help of God is ever coming, ever setting them free, whom Satan hath bound, ever giving them a fresh occasion, and a fresh impulse to glorify the God of their salvation. For with every such recovery, the child in the man is new-born. For some precious moments at least, a gentleness of spirit, a wonder at the world, a sense of the blessedness of being, an openness to calm yet rousing influences, appear in the man. These are the descending angels of God. The passion that had blotted out the child will revive. The strife of the world will renew wrath and hate. Ambition and greed will blot out the beauty of the earth. Envy of others will blind the man to his own blessedness, and self-conceit will revive in him all those prejudices whose very strength lies in his weakness. But the man has had a glimpse of the peace to gain which he must fight with himself. He has, for one moment, felt what he might be if he trusted in God, and the memory of it may return in the hour of temptation. As the commonest things in nature are the most lovely, so the commonest agencies in humanity are the most powerful. Sickness and recovery therefrom have a larger share in the divine order of things for the deliverance of man than can show itself to the keenest eyes. Isolated in individuals, the facts are unknown, or slow, and obscure in their operation are forgotten by the time their effects appear. Many things combine to render an enlarged view of the moral influences of sickness and recovery impossible. The kingdom cometh not with observation, and the working of the leaven of its approach must be chiefly unseen. Like the creative energy itself, it works in secret shadow, far from all men's sight. The teaching of our Lord which immediately follows concerning the small beginnings of his kingdom, symbolized in the grain of mustard seed and leaven, may, I think, have immediate reference to the cure of this woman, and show that he regarded her glorifying of God for her recovery as one of those beginnings of a mighty growth. We do find the same similes in a different connection in St. Matthew and St. Mark, but even if we had no instances of fact, it would be rational to suppose that the Lord, in the varieties of place, audience, and occasion, in the dullness likewise of his disciples, and the perfection of the similes he chose, would again and again make use of the same.
I now come to the second miracle of the group, namely that recorded by all the evangelists except St. John, of the cure of the man with the withered hand. This, like the preceding, was done in the synagogue, and I may remark in passing that all of this group, with the exception of the last, one of very peculiar circumstance, were performed upon the Sabbath, and each gave rise to discussion concerning the lawfulness of the deed. St. Mark says they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal the man on the Sabbath day. St. Luke adds that he knew their thoughts, and therefore met them with the question of its lawfulness. St. Matthew says they challenged him to the deed, joy asking him whether it was lawful. The mere watching could hardly have taken place without the man's perceiving something in motion which had to do with him, but there is no indication of a request. There cannot, surely, be many who have reached half the average life of man without at some time having felt the body a burden in some way, and regarded a possible deliverance from it as an enfranchisement. If the spirit of man were fulfilled of the spirit of God, the body would simply be a living house, an obedient servant, yes, a humble mediator, by the senses, between his thoughts and God's thoughts. But when every breath has, as it were, to be sent for, and brought hither with much labour and small consolation, when pain turns faith into a mere shadow of hope, when the withered limb hangs irresponsive, lost and cumbersome, an inert simulacrum of power, swinging lifeless to and fro, then even the physical man understands his share in the groaning of the creation after the sonship. When, at a word issuing from such a mouth as that of Jesus of Nazareth, the poor, withered, distorted, contemptible hand obeyed, and, responsive to the spirit within, spread forth its fingers, filled with its old human might, became capable once more of the grasp of friendship and the caress of love, of the labour for the bread that sustains the life, little would the man care that other men, even rulers of synagogues, even scribes and Pharisees, should question the rectitude of him who had healed him. The power which restored the gift of God and completed humanity must be of God. Argument upon argument might follow from old books and old customs and learned interpretations wherein man set forth the will of God, as different from the laws of his world. But the man whose hand was restored whole as the other, knew it fitting that his hands should match. They might talk. He would thank God for the crooked made straight. Bewilder his judgment they might with their glosses upon commandment and observance. But they could not keep his heart from gladness, and, being glad, whom should he praise but God? If there was another giver of good things, he knew nothing of him. The hand was now as God had meant it to be. Nor could he behold the face of Jesus, and doubt that such a man would do only that which was right. It was not Satan, but God, that had set him free. Here, plainly by the record, our Lord gave the man his share 
not of mere acquiescence, but of active will in the miracle. If man is the child of God, he must have a share in the works of the Father. Without such share in the work as faith gives, cure will be of little avail. Stretch forth thine hand, said the healer, and the man made the effort, and the withered hand obeyed, and was no more withered. In the act came the cure, without which the act had been confined to the will, and had never taken form in the outstretching. It is the same in all spiritual redemption. Think for a moment with what delight the man would employ his new hand. This right hand would henceforth be God's hand. But was not the other hand God's too? God's as much as this? Had not the power of God been always present in that left hand, whose unwithered life had ministered to him all these years? Was it not the life of God that inspired his whole frame? By the loss and restoration in one part, he would understand possession in the whole. But as the withered and restored limb to the man, so is the maimed and healed man to his brethren. In every man the power by which he does the commonest things is the power of God. The power is not of us. Our power does it, but we do not make the power. This, plain as it is, remains, however, the hardest lesson for a man to learn with conviction and thanksgiving. For God has, as it were, put us just so far away from him that we can exercise the divine thing in us, our own will, in returning towards our source. Then we shall learn the fact that we are infinitely more great and blessed in being the outcome of a perfect, self-constituting will than we could be by the conversion of any imagined independence of origin into fact for us. A truth no man can understand, feel, or truly acknowledge, save in proportion as he has become one with his perfect origin, the will of God. While opposition exists between the thing made and the maker, there can be but discord and confusion in the judgment of the creature. No true felicitous vision of the facts of the relation between his God and him, no perception of the mighty liberty constituted by the holy dependence wherein the will of God is the absolutely free choice of the man, no perception of a unity such as cannot exist between independent wills, but only in unspeakable love and tenderness between the causing will and the caused will can yet have place. Those who cannot see how the human will should be free in dependence upon the will of God have not realized that the will of God made the will of man, that, when most it pants for freedom, the will of man is the child of the will of God, and therefore that there can be no natural opposition or strife between them. Nay, more, the whole labour of God is that the will of man should be free as his will is free, in the same way that his will is free, by the perfect love of the man for that which is true, harmonious, lawful, creative, 
If a man say, But might not the will of God make my will with the intent of overriding and enslaving it? I answer, Such a will could not create, could not be God, for it involves the false and contrarious. That would be to make a will in order that it might be no will. To create in order to uncreate is something else than divine. But a free will is not the liberty to do whatever one likes, but the power of doing whatever one sees ought to be done, even in the very face of otherwise overwhelming impulse. There lies freedom indeed. I come now to the case of the man who had been paralysed for eight and thirty years. There is great pathos in the story. For many, at least of these years, the man had haunted the borders of legendary magic, for I regard the statement about the angel troubling the pool as only the expression of a current superstition. Oh, how different from the healing of our Lord! What he had to bestow was free to all. The cure of no man by his hand weakened that hand for the cure of the rest. None were poorer that one was made rich. But this legend of the troubling of the pool fostered the evil passion of emulation, and that in a most selfish kind. Nowhere in the divine arrangements is my gain another's loss. If it be said that this was the mode in which God determined which was to be healed, I answer that the effort necessary was contrary to all we admire most in humanity. According to this rule, Sir Philip Sidney ought to have drunk the water which he handed to the soldier instead. Does the doctrine of Christ, and by that I insist we must interpret the ways of God, countenance a man's hurrying to be before the rest, and gain the boon, in virtue of having the least need of it, inasmuch as he was the ablest to run, and plunge first into the eddies left by the fantastic angel? Or, if the triumph were to be gained by the help of friends, surely he was in most need of the cure, who, like this man, a man such as we hope there are few, had no friends, either to plunge him in the waters of fabled hope, or to comfort him in the seasons of disappointment, which alone divided the weary months of a life passed in empty expectation. But the Master comes near. In him the power of life rests as in its own calm home, its crystal shrine, and he that believeth in him shall not need to make haste. He knew it was time this man should be healed, and did not wait to be asked. Indeed, the man did not know him, did not even know his name. Wilt thou be made whole? Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Our Lord delays the cure in this case with no further speech. The man knows nothing about him, and he makes no demand upon his faith, except that of obedience. He gives him something to do at once. 
He will find him again by and by. The man obeys, takes up his bed, and walks. He sets an open path before us. We must walk in it. More, we must be willing to believe that the path is open, that we have strength to walk in it. God's gift glides into man's choice. It is needful that we should follow, with our effort, in the track of his foregoing power. To refuse is to destroy the gift. His cure is not for such as choose to be invalids. They must be willing to be made whole, even if it should involve the carrying of their beds and walking. Some keep in bed who have strength enough to get up and walk. There is a self-care and a self-pity, a laziness and conceit of incapacity, which are as unhealing for the body as they are unhealthy in the mind, corrupting all dignity and destroying all sympathy. Who but invalids need like miracles wrought in them? Yet some invalids are not cured because they will not be healed. They will not stretch out the hand. They will not rise. They will not walk. Above all things, they will not work. Yet for their illness, it may be that the work so detested is the only cure, or if no cure, yet the best amelioration. Labour is not in itself an evil, like the sickness, but often a divine, a blissful remedy. Nor is the duty or the advantage confined to those who ought to labour for their own support. No amount of wealth sets one free from the obligation to work, in a world the God of which is ever working. He who works not has not yet discovered what God made him for, and is a false note in the orchestra of the universe. The possession of wealth is, as it were, prepayment, and involves an obligation of honour to the doing of correspondent work. He who does not know what to do has never seriously asked himself what he ought to do. But there is a class of persons, the very opposite of these, who, as extremes meet, fall into a similar fault. They will not be healed either. They will not take the repose in which God giveth to his beloved. Some sicknesses are to be cured with rest, others with labour. The right way is all. To meet the sickness as God would have it met. To submit or to resist according to the conditions of cure. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And she who will not go to her couch and rest in the Lord is to blame, even as she who will not rise and go to her work. There is reason to suppose that this man had brought his infirmity upon himself. I do not mean by the mere neglect of physical laws, but by the doing of what he knew to be wrong. For the Lord, although he allowed the gladness of the deliverance full sway at first, when he found him afterwards, did not leave him without the lesson that all health and well-being depend upon purity of life. Behold, thou art made whole, 
Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. It is the only case of recorded cure in which Jesus gives a warning of the kind. Therefore I think the probability is as I have stated it. Hence, the fact that we may be ourselves to blame for our sufferings is no reason why we should not go to God to deliver us from them. David the king knew this, and set it forth in that grand poem, the 107th Psalm. End of chapter 4, part 1